Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 189 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most creative and popular auteurs in the business, a Mexican-born filmmaker beloved by intellectuals and fanboys alike, whose obsession with monsters has led him to make some of the most highly regarded horror and or fantasy movies of the last quarter century, including 1993's Kronos, 2001's The Devil's Backbone, 2006's Pan's Labyrinth, 2013's Pacific Rim, and most recently, 2017's The Shape of Water, which has landed him right in the thick of the Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay Oscar races, Guillermo del Toro. But first, I sat down on the Upper East Side of New York with Annette Insdorf, a professor in the Graduate Film Program at Columbia University. Over the last 30 years, she has moderated fascinating conversations at 92nd Street Y with some of the greatest film artists of our time. Real Pieces, her current series, is celebrating its 30th anniversary this year, and she has written some of the best books on film that are out there as well, including Francois Truffaut, Indelible Shadows, Film in the Holocaust, and Double Lives, Second Chances, The Cinema of Krzysztof Kieślowski. Her latest book from Columbia University Press is Cinematic Overtures, How to Read Opening Scenes. Professor Insdorf, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. What inspired you to write this latest book, and what makes for a great opening scene of a movie? Well, to tell the truth, I have been teaching film first at Yale and then at Columbia for decades using this particular approach. Mm -hmm. I'm convinced that any great motion picture, like any brilliant novel, gives you in the first few seconds the keys by which to unlock the rest of the text. So if it's like the first paragraph of a brilliant novel or if it's the opening sequence of Touch of Evil, mm -hmm. of Orson Welles, mm -hmm. or Coppola's Conversation, it's not just that you're drawn in. You're actually shown how to watch the rest of the film in terms of the way that the camera narrates it, in terms of the way that the soundtrack might be kind of tense. It basically informs you of what tone you're in, whether it is comic romantic, whether it is unsettling, whether you're forced to be kind of paying attention to every single detail because you realize there's much more going on than what you thought you would see in an opening shot. Do you have a favorite opening of a movie? Well, since my book includes at least 44 <laughs> openings, it's very hard to say there's one or two, right. but it's true that Touch of Evil, mm -hmm. Orson Welles' film, has become the kind of touchstone for opening scenes. It is justly celebrated for its three-minute, 20-second mm -hmm. tracking shot, wow. which pulls you into the action as you follow the hand of a man who's just placed a bomb in the trunk of a car. So all you know is that whoever gets into that car is in danger. Right. And then you follow the car as it moves into the street, into traffic. And then your stars, Charlton Heston and Janet Lee, walk by the car and suddenly you're afraid for them. Right. And this is all in one unbroken take that never lets you out of the emotional tension. I know some others that you touch upon are terrific and dissected very interestingly in your book, like Sunset Boulevard with Joe Gillis floating in the pool and and others. But what I have to ask you about, since this podcast certainly is tied to the current award season, is if there are any openings of 2017 movies that really stand out to you. I must say the one that I've been the most impressed by is Aaron Sorkin's Molly's Game, which, you know, he sort of makes it a point of pride to open his movies very powerfully. He did a great one, great opening with 
social network as well. But maybe you could say a few words about his and then any others from 2017 that stand out to you? That's a good question, and you're forcing me to now shift my mental landscape <laughs> from film history, my usual yes. turf, to this year. The one that is actually forcefully entering my mind mm -hmm. is the film that I do consider so far to be the best of the year, which is Dunkirk. Ah. When I sat down in the theater, I didn't really know what kind of film I was going to see. I knew it would be historical spectacle, that Christopher Nolan is a master craftsman. What I didn't realize is how immersive the experience would be in terms of following a few soldiers who I did not know. Mm -hmm. In typical motion pictures, you have an establishing shot. It tells you whose trajectory you're supposed to be following, where you are, what you are. And with Dunkirk, I was as lost as the five soldiers walking down a dangerous street. By the way, if I'm not mistaken, that's an unbroken long take as well. Those are a uh, thing was, for you. <laughs> I was, well, you know, I love long takes because they're an antidote to what I consider the legacy of MTV. Yeah. You know, I remember there was a time when shots were longer because yeah. people had the attention span. <laughs> and sometimes my students give me the impression, and popular culture does right. as well, that ADD is rampant. Omnipresent, you know, yeah. <laughs> Not so much as a disease, but as a phenomenon right. of how we relate to the details of our lives. We just right. click, click, click. Right. So long takes force me to almost physically change my my temperature. Mm -hmm. I have to let myself experience unbroken time mm -hmm. the way the characters do. And that kind of immersive technique is very effective in delineating the film's world from my usual mm -hmm. click-click world. Dunkirk was an effective way to make me realize I had to pay attention. And that the sound effects, the sound design was going to be as palpable and significant mm -hmm. as the fluid movement of the camera. And I was struck about 10 minutes into the film that I wasn't sure what was the time frame, who am I following? And I realized after a certain moment, what a risky narrative strategy. This is a big budget, mainstream mm -hmm. movie. And yet... Chris Nolan was basically, I'm sorry, I don't know him well enough. Christopher Nolan. Chrissy, come on, <laughs> no, Chrissy no, no. boy. <laughs> I, I just, I just, you know, I, I feel close to the yeah. film, so I'm suddenly yeah. calling it. No, Christopher Nolan makes the viewer a participant in the unfolding of meaning. And that's one of the strategies that I celebrate throughout my book, Cinematic mm -hmm. Overtures. I appreciate filmmakers who trust the viewer enough to provide only partial information. And that way, we don't just absorb like a sponge. We have to actively engage and look closely to see what's being withheld as well as what's being revealed. What do we have to figure out as backstory because it's not being spoon-fed to us? And to be honest with you, I really felt that some of the other best films of this year have the same kind of invitation to the viewer. And here I would include Mudbound mm -hmm. and Wonderstruck. These are films that do not tell the story of one protagonist. And by now, I'm maybe a little less excited by stories of one person. I've seen so many of mm -hmm. them. The, the collective protagonist, the ensemble piece, intrigues me more, especially because it's almost about how we have to be interdependent, yeah, not yeah. just independent. So Mudbound, whoa, 
six voiceover narrations. When I started watching the film, I go, wait, wait, wait. Didn't I just hear another voice narrating? And I I actually had to turn to my husband and look quizzically at him because I thought I missed something. And then I realized, no, 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 this is D. Reese trusting that I will distinguish among what will turn out to be half a dozen different narrators, black and white, male and female. That's risky and it pays off beautifully. Can't think of another movie that has that many different narrators. No, I can't think of a movie, but I can think of a book. When I was doing my PhD dissertation Mm -hmm. decades ago at Mm -hmm. Yale University, the book that sort of anchored it was James Agee's Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. Together with the photographs of Walker Evans, it also was anchored in this poor southern area, you know, where people were trying to eke out a living, and you heard different voices and saw different faces throughout that book. Very interesting. Well, I want to slightly shift the conversation to the idea of New York and being a New Yorker, you are so closely associated with this place. This is you've been here all your life, right? Not exactly. No, I was born in Paris. That I I remember. <laughs> yes, I came to America when I was three and a half years old. I grew up first in the Bronx mm-hmm. and then Forest Hills, right. and I went to Yale for graduate school. That was New Haven. Mm-hmm. I didn't move to Manhattan till I was like twenty nine years old. So nobody appreciates being a New Yorker more than someone who moved here after desiring it for so many years. And I I love being able to walk everywhere, to screenings, to receptions. I even walk sometimes halfway to Columbia University to teach my class. Well, the reason I, I raise this point, this topic, is that I'm from the East Coast. I worked in New York for a few years. Now I moved out to LA. I've worked there since 2012. But I come back here throughout the award season and I see you at all the film screenings and receptions. And what I've noticed is that there actually are discernible differences in the responses to movies between people who are based in New York and people who are based in L.A. each award season. I, I think I there's no way to prove that. I don't have the Academy ballots to point to. But I wonder if you feel that way at all yourself. I mean, the couple examples that really stand out in my memory were coming here the year of The Wolf of Wall Street and seeing that it was an across-the-board response from Academy members, tastemakers, people at these things. So I go back to L.A. and people thought I was insane to say that I think Jonah Hill's getting in along with Leo and on and on. And similarly with Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, which obviously has a perhaps slightly even greater impact for New Yorkers, they said you're nuts to predict that one. And so I'm sure I've been wrong on some others as well. But do you think that this is an actual thing? And if so, are there 2017 movies that you think New Yorkers may be responding to more Hmm. than others? It's a very intriguing question. And since I'm not in Los Angeles often enough to be able to compare the way you can, I'm not sure how to answer. But I'll give you my very personal response. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite films of 2017 is Norman, mm-hmm. starring Richard Gere, yes. directed by Joseph Cedar. It you was did earlier a great this talk year. with him and Oren, I think, I, producer. I, I, I actually, I interviewed Richard Gere and director Joseph, Joseph Cedar, Cedar that's what it was, uh, at yeah. the 92nd yeah. Street Y. What a great evening that was. Now, one of the reasons that I love the film is it was so honestly, authentically, and plausibly New York. This was not a movie shot in Toronto, Vancouver, or any other city that substitutes. You could almost feel 
the uh, the streets, yes. the Starbucks, the Staples, the whatever. Yeah. And maybe I responded a little bit because I felt like it was a mirror of mm-hmm. where I live. But it was also because of the gutsy casting of Richard Gere as this, you know, bottom <laughs> level feeder, <laughs> scrappy Jewish New right, Yorker. Right. And it was a, a dramedy, you know, uh, kind of about hubris, yeah. about a, a man who can't see his limitations. Right. And I thought, what an extraordinary little movie. Menasha would yeah, be my other oh. favorite of the year in this category. Yeah. And by the way, one of my funniest moments this past summer, I live two blocks from the Cinema 123 on 3rd Avenue yep. and 59th Street. And I was walking by the marquee in August and I see that there are two films on the marquee, Dunkirk and Menasha. <laughs> and I thought, no, this is too much. The biggest budgeted film of right. the year and the smallest right. budgeted A film Yiddish of the year. language. Yeah. So <laughs> Menasha, which was made for almost no money right. in Borough Park, Brooklyn, right. with non-professional actors, Yiddish language, yes. is sharing the marquee with Dunkirk. <laughs> I took a photograph. I took a photograph right. of it. And because I moderated a Q&A with the screenwriter of Manasha at the Jerusalem mm-hmm. Film Festival in July, I sent him the photograph. And he, <laughs> he found must this quite delightful. So yeah, Manasha is a film I have no idea how they would respond on the mm-hmm. West Coast. Although I gather A24 has done a superb job in getting Manasha out of the so-called ghetto of right, little art house right. films, it has been playing in major theaters across the country. It saddens me a little bit that the Academy bans American movies that are not in English from being eligible for the foreign language Oscar because this is as foreign language as, or, you know, as non-English as as a movie from Chile Absolutely. or whatever. But sure, I, sure. unfortunately, it's, it's going to have to compete with the full field in the other categories. But another thing I want to talk to you about, since the deaths of Roger Ebert and Richard Corliss, I believe that you are now the person who has been to more Cannes film festivals <laughs> than any other American. When did you first go? Oh, dear. My first Cannes film festival was 1979. Okay. And it was because I had been already at that point the translator for Francois Truffaut. Okay. And we... I was living in Paris at the time. We flew to the United States for a retrospective that the American Film Institute did of Truffaut's films in Washington and Mm -hmm. Los Angeles. It was his like 20th anniversary as a filmmaker. And in the airport of L.A., he introduces me to Gilles Jacob, (laughs) who had just become the head of the Cannes Film Festival. And Gilles Jacob was so kind and generous. And he said, oh, madame, il faut que que vous veniez à Cannes. You have to come to the Cannes Film Festival. (laughs) I hadn't really thought about it, but I thought, oh, he's inviting? Sure. I was in Paris. I'll go. And that began what was a really exciting part of my life. Among the most vividly beautiful memories I have are those with Roger Ebert, Mm -hmm. because he and I co-hosted the closing night coverage on television for Mm -hmm. Bravo and the Independent Film Channel for quite a few years. Mm -hmm. Working with Roger Ebert is one of the most joyful and provocative experiences one can have. Yeah. He had so much to say and and share about all the movies, and it, it was a good thing. So the only thing I have to question about your <laughs> <laughs> casting me in this particular right. light, I have not been going to the Cannes Film Festival for the past few years. I had to stop going when my mother was very frail and I was taking uh, yeah, care of yeah, her. Yeah. So I didn't go at all from about 2006 through 2010 because I had to stay with her. Mm-hmm. When I went back in 2011, and 12 and 13, 
it wasn't quite the same because I was no longer hosting closing mm-hmm. night coverage, which meant I no longer had the same VIP yeah, treatment. Right. <laughs> And I was no longer earning any money for being in Cannes, which meant that I was spending thousands, and I do mean thousands of dollars, for the opportunity to write many articles for the Huffington Post Mm -hmm. and get paid zero. And for other publications, but I I just finally got to a point where I couldn't rationalize it. Sure, no, it's crazy. But that I I wanted to mention, and also Telluride, where I think you introduced the panels that they now have there every year. I want to talk about these both because these are film festivals. And Telluride, you do still go to oh, every Telluride year. Telluride is my favorite film festival in the entire world. Yeah. I started going in 1979, also, also the same year, yeah. when I was the translator for Abel Gans, wow. the very old at the time, 89-year-old director of Napoleon. Yeah. And then in 1980, they asked me to be the panel moderator which I have been doing nonstop since, since 1980. And I've also been the main translator because very often the panels yeah. have, have had guests who do not speak English. Right. And I've got How many French. languages do you speak? Well, I'm fluent in French and Polish, and my Spanish is pretty good. My Russian is rusty. I studied it in college, but I haven't kept it up. That's amazing. But I've, I've been able to translate quite a bit for the director. So- some movies at Cannes and Telluride get one reception and then they go out to the rest of the world and it's slightly different. Better, worse, varies. This year, I know you were not at Cannes, but you were at Telluride and as was I. And I wonder if you've seen, because now you come back and there's we're in the season of every day, lunches, dinners, screenings, receptions, cocktail parties, everything where they're courting voters and tastemakers. Have you noticed that any movies that you saw at Telluride have gone over particularly better or worse here in New York? The one that I guess I appreciated most out of Telluride was Wonderstruck. Mm -hmm. And I think it has not been receiving as much of the love that I did feel at the festival for it. What do you think that could be about? Well, I know it would be uh, very simple to say too many movies this year with the word wonder in it. (laughs) (laughs) Wonder Woman, wonder, wonderstruck. Uh, Professor Marston and the Wonder Wonder Woman. Woman. (laughs) Wonder Wheel. (laughs) You know, after a certain point, maybe that word has become a little overused. You're actually very perceptive to say that. I don't, I mean, I'm not really serious about it, but in Telluride, I was just so struck by the cinematography of Ed Lachman by the score of Carter Burwell, by the sensitivity with which Todd Haynes directed the two children, Julianne Moore, mm-hmm. etc. And all right, here's where we get back to New York. Yeah. When the boy arrives in 1977, Manhattan, mm-hmm. New York, there was such a a juiciness, such a palpable recognizability, because yeah. I was there at yeah. the time. I kind of I felt that New York. Mm-hmm. And it entranced me. There was enough wonder in the mm-hmm. filmmaking that it pulled me in. But I guess it just hasn't really caught on to the same extent. And part of that, I just suspect, might be the fact that when you're at a film festival, you're in a certain mood, you're open to different things, all that. Now, when you're in New York, you have 20 movies to pick from. I don't. I, maybe it just doesn't appeal to people as much when you read that logline. And, and it, it's just a different receptivity or That's whatever. True. Coming back to the fact that you are a Francophile, not just born in Paris, not just a regular at Cannes, 
but also you've received some great honors from France. Oh, I, uh, I, I, they have been very generous with me. I've been decorated yes. by the French government a couple of times. Chevalier, in other words, a knight yes. in the order of arts and letters. Yes. But then they upped me to officier. I'm an officer in the category of arts and letters, which is a very sweet thing. I'm very grateful for it. Well, uh, and so I want to ask you, Officer Ensdorf, uh, <laughs> about the French New Wave, because we've just seen Anya Sparta receive an honorary Oscar at the Governor's Awards a few weeks ago. And now her movie, Faces Place as a Documentary, is going out to the world. It was well-received, I believe, at Cannes, then film festivals elsewhere. Including Telluride. Including Telluride. (laughs) And now it's over at the Lincoln Plaza here in New York. It's going out in L.A. in a few theaters. Just any thoughts on her, on that film, and also just uh, on, on the French films that are out there this year? Because I think one of them could win the... Best Foreign Language Film Oscar. Well, first of all, Faces Places is one of the best films of the year. I had the most profound feeling of pleasure as well as appreciation, respect, as as I was watching that film. It is magical. Number two, Agnes Varda made that film at the age of about 87, together with the French artist uh, J.R. Wow. (laughs) You know, just uh, that, that is encouraging for women and for anyone over 85. It's it's great that she has the energy and the vision. So we are very happy. And third, yes, you're suggesting something that I've always believed. The French New Wave wasn't just a movement that took place from, say, 1959 to 63. The legacy of the French New Wave continues. And it I don't just mean in my classes when I show yes. the films of Truffaut or right. Chabrol or Alain René. It's that someone like Agnes Varda, who was shaped by the shifts at that time in technology, in storytelling, and in political vision, she has carried that over into the present day and inspired quite a few filmmakers along the way. What I'm going to do is to take the question you just asked me and give you at least one film title that for me represents the continuation of the sensibility of the French New Wave. Mm -hmm. And I know you're going to say, what? After I give you the title, (laughs) it's Get Out. Wow. And I'll tell you why. I was so surprised when I saw Get Out. It was original. It was discomforting. It was provocative. And I realized that it worked in many ways, similarly to Truffaut's Shoot the Piano Player, his Mm -hmm. second feature way back around 1960. Why? The constant shifting of tones. Prior to the French New Wave, you could more easily categorize movies in genre terms, comedy, drama, sad, happy. Get Out is a film that keeps pulling the rug out from under the viewer's feet. And I love movies that do that in a way that makes me trust the filmmakers. I don't want somebody who chaotically is pulling the rug out from under my feet because he or she doesn't know where my feet are supposed to land. But I felt I was in the hands of somebody who really knew how to tell a story. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing to me that Jordan Peele had not directed a film before. Obviously, the work he had done with Key and Peele. It had definitely prepared him, those skits, for telling a sustained, original, fresh story that really makes people think about race. It makes you think about genre, about tone, but it really makes you think about the kind of assumptions that need to be questioned in our supposedly post-racial society, which we know is not. Get Out for me is like 
the French New Wave, mm-hmm. but it happens to be in the United States That's in 2017. Well, and to bring this full circle here, it has a great opening. It most certainly does. It made me sit up and take notice. And We should um, just remind folks he's, as I recall, just uh, walking down the street in a suburban community, this black man played by Keith Stanfield, who is, you can feel the tension building, you know something bad is going to happen, and we won't tell you what that is. You're going to have to check it out, as you will have to check out Cinematic Overtures, How to Read Opening Scenes, by my guest, Professor Annette Insdorf. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. And now for my conversation with Guillermo del Toro. I sat down with a gregarious filmmaker who I had never met before, but who greeted me with a big bear hug at the offices of Fox Searchlight on the Fox lot in Century City. Over the course of our conversation, del Toro and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them. How supernatural experiences that he had as a child and his childhood obsession with Forrest J. Ackerman's magazine Famous Monsters of Filmland have shaped his life and interests ever since. How his early work as a special effects makeup artist led to his directorial debut, Kronos, which at the time of its release was the second most expensive Mexican film ever made. Why his first film for a major American studio, 1997's Mimic, and his follow-up to that, The Devil's Backbone, were such heartbreaking experiences. Why his comic book-inspired movies, 2002's Blade II, 2004's Hellboy, and 2006's Hellboy II, The Golden Army, are every bit as precious to him as his completely original works, such as Pan's Labyrinth, 2015's Crimson Peak, and The Shape of Water. Why he has employed the actor Doug Jones to play the monster in seven different projects over the 20 years spanning Mimic through The Shape of Water. Why he calls The Shape of Water which was inspired by the 1954 film Creature from the Black Lagoon and was made for just $19.5 million, but has production value that looks much more expensive, a summation of his life and work and his most personal film to date, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Gamble, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. We always just begin this podcast asking, where were you born and raised and what did your parents do for a living? I was born and raised in Guadalajara, Mexico, 1964, October 9th. <laughs> and my mother is a homemaker, and my dad, he had the car dealerships all over the country and uh, real estate. And they were both pretty observant Catholics, right? You know, sort of a loosey-goosey. <laughs> <laughs> you know, according to, if the sin was theirs, they were pretty loose. <laughs> But so were, was the home, though, growing up? I, I know you kind of moved yeah. away a little My bit. My grandmother was. She was, okay. Very strict. Okay. My dad is, you know, very devout to, to some degree and to others not. My mother isn't. Yeah. My mother basically was interested in the magic and, you know, reading the tea leaves, reading the hand, the tarot. Yeah. The I Ching, you know. <laughs> and were movies or TV a big part of your life growing up? Mine, yes. The yeah. rest of the family, no. Nobody else? No. So how did that work? You know, I, I really, it started with my brother and I, you know, watching TV a lot. Yeah. And late at night yeah. and so forth. But he moved on to sports. He became sort of a jock. <laughs> and I hesitate to say I didn't. <laughs> All evidence to the contrary. <laughs> and so you would... Go by yourself to the movies. Yeah, I would go. I would, as a, a very young, one of my uncles on my mother's side, the uncle I was named for, yes, Guillermo, 
who was also the name of my grandfather, you know, he and I, we became very close friends. And he was very hard drinking. You know, he was an alcoholic, mm -hmm. but he was very well read and he gave me books and so forth. And he was very cultured. He loved cinema. He took me to see 2001. He took me to see Taxi Driver wow. at a very young age. Yeah. And he went with me to all the horror movies of the era, like Terror of the Blind Dead and Raw Meat and this and that. And we talked a lot because he he thought I was pretty compelling as a as a mind. And I, you know, we had these huge arguments about life after death, blah blah blah. He actually is the first ghost I heard. I, I've heard two ghosts in my life. The first time I heard a ghost was him. I'm going to prompt you for that story because I read it and it's amazing. But first mm -hmm. I want to ask you just generally movie monster specifically, I think became an interest of yours at a very young age. And I mm -hmm. think we have somebody who you, you've sort of become the successor to in a way in terms of having Bleak House, which I'll also ask you about. But yeah. Forrest Ackerman, can you explain for people who don't know who he was, who he was and why he had an influence on you as a well, kid? Well, uh, Forrest Ackerman, I learned English by watching subtitle Universal Monster Movies mm -hmm. and reading Mad Magazine and a, another magazine called Famous Monsters of Filmland, which was crucial in, in a couple of generations of monster kids, mm -hmm. so to speak. And it was edited by Forrest J. Ackerman, who had been a very successful sci-fi agent for Theodore Sturgeon, Ray Bradbury, many, many of the great ones, including the pre-Scientology, yeah, right. L. Ron Hubbard. Yes, yes. You know, but he then became the editor of this magazine that celebrated the art of makeup, the art of storytelling through monsters, uh, dedicated entire issues to Lon Chaney, Vincent Price, blah, blah, blah. And it became sort of a home for me. Mm -hmm. And the first book I bought with my own money was an anthology of short stories curated by him. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that anthology, it had his address. His, his, his telephone was made public, too. His really? telephone was, he had a his mansion in Los Feliz. This was the Acker Mansion, the right? Acker, <laughs> the Acker Mansion, which was a huge collection of memorabilia, books. And his phone was, if I remember correctly, either 213 or 323 Moon Fan. <laughs> or 818, it could have right, been. Right, right. And, and you could call him. And at a very tender age, I wrote him a letter saying, could you please adopt me because my, fam <laughs> my family doesn't understand me. And that was who he was. And, and my, my collection of things is two houses. Just so people understand, this is these are not the houses that you live no, in. No, no. Like are, him, you have so many items that yeah. are related to horror and monsters. And well, it, it goes well beyond that because what I did is I created a research library. Yeah. So I have 13 libraries in the house. I have history, uh, photography, art, fiction, literature, magic, fairy tales, anthropology. And they are two houses together that are 13 libraries and, and then a collection of illustrated art. I have Edward Gorey, Arthur Rackham, Edmund Lack, Kay Nielsen. You know, it's a really, it's a really nice collection. Yeah. And it's touring now in several museums. Well, I was lucky enough to see it at LACMA. It was incredible. It just And that was the tip of the iceberg, right? Yeah. That's not even most that's, of it. That's 580 objects from a collection that is about 10,000. Oh, my God. Well, yeah. I want to ask you why you think when you saw his magazine, you responded to it. And I don't know if, if seeing the magazine came before or after these 
sort of ghost interactions that you've talked about. Before. Maybe, before. So you saw the magazine before, yeah. and then you had, maybe you can share with those. I, I had one one when I was a kid, which was I uh, with this uncle, I made a deal. Imagine yeah. how one-sided the deal was. I said, whoever dies first should let the other one know. And he was a lot older, right? <laughs> he was like in his 30s. I was in my, I was 10 or 11, right, you know? Right. And I inherited his room in my parents' house, uh-huh. in the guest room. And I moved my stuff there for a while, and one night I started hearing his voice. This is so he's died. He died. So how old were you when he died? I would say about 12, 11, 12. And so he was quite young when he died. He was young when he died. Uh, he died after a binge. Uh-huh. They found him dead. And I was doing my homework in that room, and I started hearing his voice sighing, oh. really sad, next to my ear. Mm-hmm. And there was nobody. And, and I was doing my homework, mm-hmm. watching TV. Uh, and, and I know it was not a case of hypnotism or a case of self-delusion. I started moving around the room, and the voice moved with me, and I recognized it, and I ran away. You know, I so never you thought never, he was honoring his commitment. I, that's what I thought, but I never came back to check it. I never went back into that room really? ever, ever again. No. Wow. And the second instance of sort of a ghost interaction, I think it, it was the one that in a way inspired Pan's Labyrinth, right? The one with my uncle is the one that inspired Devil's Backbone. Okay. In many ways. And the second one actually hasn't inspired anything. No. But it was during the scouting of The Hobbit. Okay. You know, I go and stay in haunted hotels all over the world yeah. and nothing ever happens. Yeah. So you don't think I'm, it happens every two weeks. Right. <laughs> nothing ever happens. And, and I was in the Waitomo Hotel in Waitomo, New Zealand, and it was closed for the season. Um, but they opened it for us because we were scouting the Hobbit. And I, I asked this specifically for the haunted room. <laughs> and in the middle of the night, I heard screams, horrible screams, like a murder. And then a pause and sobbing. And I couldn't sleep the whole night. But but I heard them right there in the room. I'm not gullible. I just want to tell you. No. I'm, these things happen to me. I'm not a believer. Or, yeah. on, I mean, I'm a very skeptic guy. Well, you're also somebody, though, who I know has read a lot about science and mm-hmm. things. So you, on one shoulder, you have something telling you this cannot be. But mm-hmm. on the other hand... It's happening. It's happening. <laughs> yes. So, And that goes back. Is it true that the first thing I, I had read, you mentioned your grandmother... Did you used to stay at her house? And maybe even before any of these things happened, wasn't there something about a, f- a goat, a man? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I started, when I was very young, I started having lucid dreaming, which meant you wake up in the room in the dream. Mm-hmm. And it looks real. It's like you're really in the room. And then things happen that are impossible. Mm-hmm. And then you wake up for real in the middle of a panic. And I used to dream, I woke up in the bed and I would see there was a huge armoire in front of the bed and I would see a hand come around the armoire and then a leg, a goat leg come from the armoire and then a goat face come out but had human shoulders. And I got really, really scared and screamed and, you know, to some degree, that's the design I use for uh, the fun in Van Labyrinth, yeah. So many people, as they grow older, I think they lose some of their imagination or their openness to whatever comes their way. Why is it that from that early point in your life through today, you have more of a ability to experience these kinds of things than most people? I don't know. I, look, I think that everything I am and everything I've articulated through art because the beauty of uh, starting with a passion is you start reading, 
you know, if you start reading genre literature, you're going to eventually stumble upon Victor Hugo, Oscar Wilde, Henry James, Saki, Robert Louis Stevenson, Mark Twain, you know, many, many of the great names uh, dealt with the, the sort of parable aspect of uh, the, these narratives. Same with film. Mm -hmm. We forget that some of the most seminal images on film, the most famous ones, come from a genre. Yeah. So, you know, when the Spaniards conquered Mexico, a phenomenon occurred that is known as syncretism. Mm -hmm. We took the religion, the Catholic religion, and we incorporated it to the native myths. Mm -hmm. The same happened in the Caribbean and so forth. Mm -hmm. And to me, this is an act of syncretism because I was very, very, very Catholic. And as I lapsed eventually, there was a transition that fused for me the Catholic devotion mm -hmm. and the sort of cosmology of, of Catholicism with the the fabulistic parable aspect of monsters and fantasy. And so when people say to me, what genre do you do? I say, I don't do genre. Right. I really don't. Right. I produce mm -hmm. genre mm -hmm. as a producer. As a director, most of my movies are its own beast. They are an amalgam of impossible uh, things that shouldn't be together. <laughs> a fairy tale in post-fascist yeah. Franco-Spain, a gothic ghost story in a Western-like landscape in the war, Civil War in Spain, a middle-class vampire in Mexico, or a musical thriller drama Douglas Sirk version of a monster movie, Beauty and the Beast, which is Shape of Water. Right. So it is, it is for me, I've been at it for 25 years, mm -hmm. and all my craft and all my thought has been put to the service of what I think are artistic, beautiful manifestations of fables and parables. I guess your first steps into show business, in a way, were taking some of the things that you learned through, I would guess, the Ackerman magazine, and now you decide, I'm going to do some short films with a Super 8 that I think was your dad's, and then yeah. also doing some special effects and makeup yeah. and things. Can you talk about how you took your first steps into doing this stuff yourself? Well, I, I took my dad's camera. First of all, I didn't know movies were made. Mm -hmm. I thought movies happened and somebody recorded by accident that they, <laughs> they, they were there. Right. I didn't know what I thought. I thought they were like fruit mm -hmm. that grew in the trees. And then one day I grabbed my father's camera. He had a Super 8, and I recorded a sort of a stop-motion animation with my Planet of the Apes figures. <laughs> I, you took the reel to the pharmacy mm -hmm. when I was a kid, and the pharmacy would return the reel like two weeks later. <laughs> and I got that reel and I projected it on my father's Super 8 projector. And it's the greatest opening I've ever had. Because <laughs> I felt there was a magical thing where I said, that thing on the screen, I did it. Yeah. yeah. I knew I wanted to do monsters in my movies and I self-learned everything I could to do makeup for my short films. Who would you test it out on? Your sibling? Myself, yeah, mostly. Yeah, yeah. With, with wax and yeah. and color. And, you know, I would do these little makeups. Uh, but uh, I was directing and I was trying to learn explosives, yeah. makeup, <laughs> special effects, stunts to do my movies. And, and that led to me meeting Dick Smith. Yes, and, great makeup artist, the, yeah. exorcist, all this stuff. The, the grandfather of it all. How did you? So, how did you meet him? When I wrote what him. Age? I, I I was in my early twenties. Okay. And I wrote him and I said, "Look, I'm planning a movie called Kronos, and if you don't teach me how to do these things, I cannot make it." 
Mm-hmm. And he took me as a pupil, and I took his course, and I learned makeup effects. You could do it sort of via yeah. mail? Yeah, you would do it via mail, and then you would need to go to New York and sort of pass the bar exam yeah, with him yeah. every year. And he was very harsh. He was yeah. a very harsh but very gentle yeah. teacher. Yeah, yeah. He was incredibly generous. But he, when critiquing your work, he was merciless. Mm-hmm. I got to interview him shortly before he died, and I know he it sounds like so many people he really influenced. There would be no modern makeup effects without him. Yes. So just pausing for one second to do one more sort of childhood question. If we found kids that you went to school with as a child and said, what was Guillermo like? What would they say? Were you... Were you a social kid? Were you the cool kid, a nerdy kid? Like, how would you fit in? With I was them? I was all of that. I was really mo- very much an outcast until first grade mm-hmm. when I gained weight mm-hmm. and I could fend for myself. <laughs> I, I got into a lot of fistfights. I learned to use humor mm-hmm. and storytelling. And then starting in seventh grade, I was doing theater. I, I would sing. I would paint. I would sculpt. And everybody, I became sort of, very socially loved mm-hmm. by the school because I was one of the 10 artistic kids in the school, you know, and we were very well-liked. Mm-hmm. So my high school years were really fun. Did kids know what you were doing at home with this stuff? Uh, they, they did. They did. I, I would have posters for my Super 8 premieres. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, they would sell out and, uh, you know, the, the, it would play to a packed house. Wow. The Super 8s were not always <laughs> really worth the price of admission. <laughs> they would remember me as everything, as fun, as re- introverted, as extroverted. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was a, a little bit of everything. So flashing forward again, once you took the Dick Smith course and you were now going, sort of becoming an adult, going out into the world... I believe it's the case that you started your own special effects company, Necropia, in 1985. That was, was that your first sort of professional job? No, I had I, I had been uh, for a while. I, I was in real estate. You know, I was I worked on real estate for a while for my father, mm-hmm. who was the most stringent boss I've ever had, you know, and I tried to sell cars. I yeah. failed, but I was, I was pretty good at real estate. I was pretty good at building and selling and, you know, I, I enjoyed it. And to this day, you know, any, anytime I go anywhere, I get the real estate magazines <laughs> and I read them on the plane. Yeah. And so what was it though, that gave you the confidence to go and actually try to make it as a filmmaker professionally? Well, it started with the company. I was doing real estate. You know, real estate started at 6 Mm a.m. because you were going to to see how construction was progressing and closed with the banks, which in Mexico used to close at 2 p.m. So from 4 p.m. on, I was free. Mm -hmm. And what I did is I started going 4 p.m. on. I have this company that makes makeup effects. Wow. And you were doing it for other Mexican films. For other Mexican filmmakers. And I started doing storyboarding for action sequences and all this. And I started accumulating favors until I cashed them all in Kronos. But all the while, the difficulty and the prejudice I found from the start, uh, I went to the Mexican Institute of Film and I said, this is Kronos. And to me, is a beautiful piece of art mm-hmm. and is a very tender, very spiritual take on the vampire myth. And, of course, that wouldn't fly. They said, it's a vampire movie. Mm-hmm. And it's not a vampire movie. something all its own. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that now that it's been 25 years, mm-hmm. I think people 
may now know that I'm serious about this. Yes. And that this is my art form. For sure. And you've you've made it more respected, I think. But so just to remind people, Kronos came out in 1993. Yeah. And you're saying it was only possible because all of these other people that you'd worked with owed me favors. Owed you favors and financing. Because yeah. I mean, I read it was at a budget of $2 million. Mm-hmm. This was at the time the second most expensive Mexican film ever made. After like Water for Chocolate, yeah. yeah. And the, the thing is that half of the, uh, it costed one5 and 500000 in interest. Uh, it was a time when the interest was, and I quote, 105% annually. Uh, it, was, it was a time of great economical disgrace for Mexico. So I wish that half a million was on the screen, but it won for the first time in, I think, 30 years. It won the Critics Week Prize in Cannes. Mm-hmm. And uh, it won six or nine of the Academy Awards in Mexico. It won like 12 international prizes. And I thought, okay, it's going to get easier. And it didn't. Well, let's just talk, though, about the making of it. Were you confident? Up to that point, you had been primarily an effects guy. Yeah. Were you confident that you also had the skills to do all the other things that a director has to do? Well, yes and no, because I've directed eight Super 8s, one 16mm, one 35mm, and about three TV programs mm-hmm. for a TV series. So I had some experience. Mm-hmm. Now, nothing you do prepares you for the feature. Mm-hmm. That's a completely different experience. But I think that you have two, two meters when you direct. One is experience, and the other one is arrogance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you start with the full meter and arrogance when you're young and low meter and experience. <laughs> And then they kind of even out. <laughs> and if you do your job right, the experience right. becomes far more than arrogance. Right. And I think you have to believe you have it. I mean, it is an act of hubris to direct, yeah. to say, I know how it needs to be told. Well, why was that the story that you most wanted to tell as your first, you know, and there was no guarantee there would be a second film? I mean, you mentioned it would be reductive to just call it a vampire movie. Yeah. But, I mean, this is a a girl growing closer to her grandfather as he becomes a vampire, right? And some, maybe that's also too reductive, but... No, no, that's the point by which I wanted to make the movie. I wanted to make the movie to show the same thing that I'm doing in Shape of Water for, which is love is an imperfect thing. And my my grandmother, who was very strict with me, and even you would say cruel Mm -hmm. in raising me Catholic, you know, I still loved her. She died before I did Kronos. And I wanted to do the story of a kid that loves grandpa in spite of the fact that the grandfather is proven to be a monster, you know? And and I thought that was a beautiful sentiment. There could be a real human emotion there. That is, in many ways, still the theme of Shape of Water, love in spite of differences, Mm -hmm. love in spite of otherness, Mm -hmm. you know? It is pretty much linked You've said that one of the first people who saw and really got behind that movie was James Cameron. And I guess he's been a friend ever since then. How did he come to see it? And did he have any valuable feedback? Well, Berto Navarro and Guillermo Navarro both supported me in making this movie. And it was almost impossible to finish it. And we were short on financing. I had to take a loan on my house and sell my car. And mm-hmm. at age 28, mm-hmm. I had a debt of a quarter of a million dollars. And we were looking for financing. And Ron Perlman is in the movie. And Ron Perlman was with Linda Hamilton in Beauty and the Beast. And one barbecue, 4th of July, 
there she is, Linda Hamilton with Jim Cameron. <laughs> and we're on the line for the ribs at Ron Perlman's house. And he says, I heard you made a movie. And I say, yep. He says, when are you showing it to me? I said, I, I, when I get shameless enough to show it. And he was kind enough to actually go. And as he was entering, he said, look, I'm, I'm waiting for an urgent phone call. If my beeper goes, it was beeper time, mm -hmm. uh, I'll have to leave. And I go, okay. So he goes into the movie and he watches the whole movie. And he comes out and he says, you know what? It was bullshit. I didn't have any emergency. <laughs> I have my secretary on, on dial. And if the movie was horrible, I would have gotten there. the beeper. <laughs> yeah. That's and, great. And then he, he said to me, this doesn't look like a first movie. It's right. so confident. It's so profound. And it's beautiful. Who are you? Right. Tell me more. And we, we started. We, he was there supposedly to watch the movie, and he had to run. Mm -hmm. And he spent four hours with us That's great. after the movie. Yeah. Well, and, and I guess that also explains why Ron Perlman's been in so many of your movies <laughs> over the years. <laughs> well, I was a fan before I hired him. Yes. Huge yes. fan. So after you've got this movie that was actually really well received when it, when people finally saw it, I was reading the New York Times review again this morning, yeah, and, and they yeah. they did a great. And then also they did a profile of you, and you know I think you were walking them through an old cemetery, cemetery with yeah. the dog that wouldn't leave you alone. And back in those days, back in those days, if you got L.A. Times and New York Times, Variety, and Hollywood Reporter, you were made. You're made, yeah. And and that movie got. Yeah. Got, I think, all four. And so I guess as a result of, of that success, now Hollywood wants to work with you, as always happens. And I just want to read back something that you said, which is yeah. very funny. But first to set it up, you were hired by Miramax's Dimension Films to yes. make the movie yeah. Mimic, yeah. a movie about giant insects taking over the New York yes. subway system. Yes. You're given $30 million now, $28 yeah. million more, more than you'd had before. Yeah. This is going to be your first American studio movie. You're going to come to Hollywood, I assume, and do it. And the quote was, you said it was one of the worst experiences of your life, quote, even above the kidnapping of my father, yes. close quote. Yes. So just to note, I guess that actually happened a year later, I think, the kidnapping. Well, but the idea that it was such a why was. was this such a horrible it experience? Was. Absolutely putrid. Why? It was pure madness because the goalposts, kept changing on what the movie was. I knew what I wanted to make, and I really wanted to make... I worked with John Sayles very closely, and we worked a really phenomenal script that was an allegory of what it is to be human and what it takes if you look like a human but you don't act like a human, the contrast between sacrifice from a human and insects that are hardwired to just sacrifice themselves for no reasons, blah, 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 blah. And then it turned into what it turned, you know? And it was... Such horrible interference every day, every step of the process, madness. And I was really supported and blessed with the fact that Mira Sorvino mm -hmm. believed in me mm -hmm. and supported me. And she and was just coming off her Oscar. Oscar, yeah. she was with Quentin, who was mm -hmm. very close to that. So I stayed. I prevailed and stayed. And I learned much from that experience. I think you learn more from adversity mm -hmm. than you learn from success. But to go back a second, you know, this movie came at the end of a drought because I wrote Devil's Backbone in another version mm -hmm. right after Kronos. I went to the Mexican Institute of Film and they still didn't want to finance it. Even after all Even the success? Even after all that. No, they didn't care. And they said, it's a ghost movie. And I said, it's, not a, it's much more than that. I think that that prejudice I've encountered over decades mm -hmm. and I think I've now vanquished it, hopefully. Mm -hmm. But it is because I believe that uh, 
most people listen yeah. and don't see yeah. the movies. You know, they after Mimic, I I've never been tampered with. Well, and I guess it was such a scarring experience because yeah. you've said, "quote There's nothing more painful for a father than to have a perfect daughter who has lost her right arm." Yeah, I can't look at it. You're talking now about the yeah. movie essentially I, I, being. I, I made my peace a little bit with it because one of the things I realized is that visually, is the movie I wanted. Yeah. It is very beautiful, yes. and that's why I reunited with the cinematographer yes. for Crimson Peak and Shape of yes. Water, you know, because I love, we had such a camaraderie, and that's yes. why I went back to Toronto, because right. I love the crew, right. you know. So part of the movie, the covenant between filmmaker and image was unbroken, you know. And I guess the other positive thing to come out of it is that I believe that was the first project on which you worked with Doug Jones, yes. who's been the model for your monsters, I think, ever since. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doug Jones is a sort of a Buddhist monk yeah. of makeup effects. He can take any punishment, and he is not a performer. He's an actor. So tell people, though, because there's something physically about him that makes him good for working with you as well, right? What is it about his physicality? Well, if you can imagine a, a living wire armature for a sculptor, <laughs> that's what Doug is. Right. And Doug is basically a like a Giacometti figure, yeah, yeah. you know, he has, he was blessed with having no torso and no ass <laughs> and no muscle mass whatsoever. He's the opposite of the Kardashians. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, he is truly like a wireframe. Right. So you can sculpt any creature on him right. and it's, it's going to look great. The, the worst thing you can do is to sculpt a creature and it has a big head mm. or disproportionate shoulders. So dog allows you to create this almost godlike figures of beautiful proportions because he is that then? And so now you have, at this point, have worked with him seven times, including just so people again see the connective tissue. He is your water monster in Shape of Water. Yeah, he is, and he's done Hellboy One, Hellboy Two, Mimic, Pan's Labyrinth, The Strain, so many. Yeah. You know? Eventually, I guess only after Mimic does the Devil's Backbone get made. This is a ghost story set in 1939 during the Spanish Civil War. Yes. And first of all, I guess you've done two films that are in some ways connected to the Spanish Civil War and what it was like in Spain under Franco's yeah. authoritarian rule. First Devil's Backbone, later Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah. And I just wonder, unfortunately, I think most Americans don't really fully grasp what that Spanish Civil War was about, what that time was like in Spain. Yeah. Can you explain just an overview of what that was about and then also why it's something that you've return to in movies? Well, to be succinct, I mean, I think civil wars never heal. You know, no matter what country they happen, the rift that occurs in society never quite heals. Unless the country gets really, really active in self-examination, mm -hmm. they are a generational ghost. Mm -hmm. And that's what I wanted to say in Devil's Backbone. What happened is during the Republican government, the right wing, the fascist, uh, did a coup and took power and uh, brought back General Franco to, to act as the ruler of the nation. And then the Republican resistance, you know, waged war, and each of the sides was supported by uh, different countries. You know, in the case of Franco, for very specific purposes, he was supported by Hitler. Mm -hmm. And this is why it's important to the world. I'm being very, very fast. This is good. Hitler yeah. tested many of the techniques that he would apply in World War II. Mm -hmm. 
during the civil war in Spain, including blanket bombing, for example, and using the German Air Force mm -hmm. during the campaign against the Republicans and so forth. And the resistance, even after Franco vanquishes officially the Republican side, still is very active in World War II, for example, sabotaging the tungsten mining, mm -hmm. which was supplying tungsten for the panzer tanks for Hitler. Mm -hmm. and, and they expected in return that the Allies would come and rescue the country back from the hands of Franco, but the Allies make a strategic alliance with Franco to watch over the Russians in Europe. So it is a, a huge heartbreak that actually helps, that is at the apex of the mapping of the world, mm -hmm. the modern world, before, during, and after World War II. Mm -hmm. Devil's Backbone is towards the end of the Civil War, Civil and yeah. Panslavern is after, Out. when supposedly there's peace. Yes. But the recorded activity of the Mackie resistance in the north of Spain, particularly in Galicia, the war has not ended, mm -hmm. and the military police is sent to suffocate these little pockets of rebellion. Mm -hmm. you know? I guess the other thing that those two movies, Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth, share in common is that and you've talked about this, that the bad guy in both cases is actually a very presentable, attractive person. Now, Same, same with The Shape of Water. Shape of Water, yeah. too. So what's the psychology behind that? I know there is. Well, in every instance, in all three instances, this is a guy that, as the movie advances, starts to sort of decompose, <laughs> you know, and show his true self, mm -hmm. you know? And in, every, in, in almost all three instances, you get in the middle or towards the end a couple of glimpses of humanity mm -hmm. from that character. Mm -hmm. Because I'm very interested in that. And I'm very interested in how, you know, we, we still judge a lot by appearance, you know. Mm -hmm. And there's this irredeemable evil in Devil's Wagon, this guy that is completely corrupt. But people have hopes for him because he's young and good-looking, mm -hmm. but he is a monster, yeah. you know? <laughs> I think, by the way, uh, fascism and violence have that disguise. Where it looks good. But well, it then, looks good, yeah, and yeah. It's, a, it's a quick release for everything that we have is boiling inside us and is attractive. In the case of armies, they have nice uniforms, yeah, you yeah. know, and it's, it's horribly disguised with ideals. Yeah that are ideologies, that are that are presented as motherland, country, the sacrosanct nature of a nationality and a race. I mean, it's really very hard to say that evil looks evil from the beginning. Evil looks attractive sometimes, yeah. yeah. On Devil's Backbone, how did Pedro Almodovar become involved as a executive producer? Because it sounded like you two worked closely on that. Yeah, well, he, he came to me in the Miami Film Festival I said, I love Kronos. I would like to produce a movie for you. I had the experience of Mimic. And after that, uh, I said, would you still produce a movie <laughs> for me? And he said, yeah. He said, what do you have in mind? I told him Devil's Bag one. He said, yes. And, and this is one of the instances in which I had a choice. I've done it three times. Blade 2 came to, to me and they said, we want you to make the movie. I talked to Wesley. I talked to the studio, New Line, and they wanted me to do it. And they said, we want you to do it before Devil's Back When I said, no, mm -hmm. I'm going to do Devil's Back One first. Well, we, we, we will give them money. I said, it's not about money. I want principle. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do my movie and then I'll do your movie, mm -hmm. you know, and I'll have fun and I'll love it, but you wait for me or you can take it. Right. You know, and they waited for me. Well, you've also walked away from a lot of other things that people would be surprised that you, I mean. Some, some of which I cannot mention because of NDAs. Sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, but I think some that are out there as, as mm -hmm. known, I mean, 
I think you were offered the chance to direct some of the Harry Potter movies, the Chronicles of Narnia, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. You know, a lot of people, whether it's the the prestige of the of the property or it's the pay or whatever, they would have done those things. Why did you not? Some of those offers were more informal than others. Some of, some of, when, of them were very formal. Mm-hmm. Some others that are the NDA ones were very <laughs> formal and were directed eventually by somebody else. But, I, you know, look, directing a movie is a marriage. It's not dating. You exchange three years of your soul and life mm-hmm. for an entry on IMDb. <laughs> now, for some people, it may make no difference. They may not understand the difference between say, Pacific Rim or one of these. But for me, there is a huge difference. One, I just stated, I am completely attracted to from the deepest fiber of my childhood Mm -hmm. and being. I think I can do or I can try something different with it. And the others, I don't. I mean, uh, there there was one giant superhero movie that got offered to me, and I was very blunt. I said, I I have no kinship for this superhero. Mm -hmm. I have no kinship whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I've never thought about career. Look, I, I dress very bad. <laughs> I, I, I drive a Chrysler from 2013. Yeah. I still go to Ralph's. Yeah. I have my Pavilions discount card. So uh, the only materialism in your life monsters. Is, is monsters. <laughs> monsters, movies, and books. That's I, you know? I, I love it. And I honestly think it's much easier to go to sleep at night in peace, having been faithful to what you believe you needed to do, mm-hmm. than to take a, an ulterior motive and you'll probably do a better job if it's something you want to be doing. Of course you do. Well, of course you do. And I, I, I think that's so simple, and yet it's not the common thing. Yeah. And, you know, what I can tell you is this. My three favorite movies I've done are Shape of Water, Devil's Backbone, mm-hmm. and Pants, in that order. Mm-hmm. And the two times I've been in the conversation during award yes. season, it has occurred in my own terms. Pants and Shape. And Shape. Yeah. I didn't go and have to do... The life of Louis Pasteur, yeah, <laughs> you know, or 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 a searing melodrama, right. you know. I've done what I've been doing, and I think that that is what makes it satisfying. Yeah, what good would it be if I was in the conversation with a movie that I did for God knows what reason? Well, yeah, because some people they call it Oscar bait. You just try to make what you think the Academy will like, but you've waited for them to come to you. Well, that's not the principle of life, right? You know. Well, let me ask you, though, because when people look at your filmography, it's not that they don't like these two movies that I'm going to ask you about, but they just don't seem to necessarily fit in the same way as they stand out as being a little different, I think. And those Mm -hmm. are Blade Two in 2002 and then Hellboy in 2004. I read that you really did Blade Two so that you could do Hellboy. Is that right? To a point. But I was really attracted to the villain. I very much wanted to make the movie because the villain was this tragic fallen, almost like a fallen prince, Mm -hmm. you know? And it was very much almost like a Frankenstein in another way. So when I met with Wesley Snipes, I said, I don't understand Blade. I said, and I'm completely uncool. You take care of Blade and I'm going to make the movie as if the villain is the hero. Mm -hmm. And he said, that's a great idea. Let's do it. And we did it. And to me, the movie should be called Nomak, you know, because I made it for that character. But also the idea was that by it, doing Blade Two, then you would have the confidence of the studio yeah. to get to do Hellboy, which yeah. you cared about more. Well, if you remember that prehistorical time 15 years ago or 16 <laughs> years ago, back then it was quite iconoclastic and quite not in vogue to try and make 
comic book hero movies. Wasn't that crazy? To it, think was, about? it was. Yeah. The, it was the prehistory of this, right? You know, and in fact, I think that Blade One is sort of the big bang of modern superhero movies in many, many ways to to my appreciation, you know, mm-hmm. because that begets Matrix, that begets X-Men, that begets many, many things. But back then, it was an almost iconoclastic mm-hmm. endeavor, you know. Mm-hmm. Now it isn't. Right. And now I'm not interested right. in doing superhero movies right. because it would be the norm. But doing Hellboy was very important for me for many, many reasons, but it's a hero that is written very much from an almost autobiographical way, written for Ron, is not a superhero that is a monster for me. And uh, the father-son elements. Father-son elements, which are very dear to me. Mm-hmm. And just, uh, I was in love with the character. I, I was, and I am. Yeah. I love that character. You know, it's very close to me. It, we shared the same birthday. Wow. I made it 9th of October, 1964 for me. Wow. And he's born 9th of October. And the same date that the creature in Shape of Water is going to be liberated. That's great. Yeah. Well, so the thing that those two movies, Blade Two and Hellboy, share in common that the one that you did after them does not, Pan's Labyrinth, yeah. you had big budgets on those two, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You chose. You, not that it Second was a time. total choice, but you wanted a smaller budget it for Pan's Labyrinth. It, it was, was 100%. Why would you want less of a budget? Well, again, this has happened three times. First one, Devil's Back one, second, Pants, and third, Shape of Water. Pure choice. You know, what happened with Hellboy was very satisfactory. I enjoyed it a lot, blah, blah, blah. But I felt a lot of angst in me. And I, I, I was turning 40, you know, and it was a cliche of the middle life crisis. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, you know, asking those fundamental questions. What am I doing? What have I done? What, no. And those are answered in the movie, mm-hmm. you know, and the, that it says the main character leaves little traces of the time in the world for those that care where to look, mm-hmm. you know. And, and it, I, I started writing that from a very dark place and I felt it was a, an incredibly willful act. Mm-hmm. After Hellboy, which made money mostly gigantically in ancillary markets. Mm -hmm. It was huge on Mm Blu-ray, huge on DVD. It was the time when you could do Austin Powers and get a sequel because you were massive on Blu-ray and DVD. And what happened is they said, they offered me every superhero under the sun. And I said, no, I'm going to Spain and I'm going to make this movie. And I hadn't even written it. Now, this is just, you know, catch people up in case they haven't seen. We're talking now... Pan's Labyrinth, which came out in 2006, a young girl in 1944, fascist Spain, exploring the underworld, and come back to the sort of waking dreams that you were referring to earlier with the The phone. phone. You've called it, quote, a movie about a girl who gives birth to herself into the world she believes in, close quote. And there's actually quite a lot of, I guess, gynecological would be the right word, symbolism throughout the movie. So why... Aside from those dreams that you'd had, why was that a story that you, when you sat down to write it, that you decided this is what I want to tell? Because I believe in the power of faith, and I believe in the power of disobedience. And I think that disobedience is the the beginning of thought, you know, and independence. And I believe that there's nothing more valuable socially and individually than to be able to disobey. And it was a time when I was on the brink of becoming obedient mm-hmm. in my own personal life. And I said, I can't do it. I'm, I'm going to disobey 
I felt it was an imperious need. And we did it counter to everything. And in this instance, on Shape of Water, the, two of the hardest shoots I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Really, really hard. But, you know, for you, it's a filmography. For AMDB, is one entry. For people, it's a curiosity. For me, it's a biography. Mm-hmm. You know? And I can tell you, for example, with Shape of Water, everything I am, everything I've ever done in 25 years of filmmaking and 53 years in this earth leads me to that movie. Mm-hmm. And it's my biography. Mm-hmm. This is me in my totality coming with a movie because I have to make it. And just so people have an idea of how much you bit off, first with Pan's Labyrinth, we'll come to Shape of Water, but with mm-hmm. Pan's Labyrinth. They have, they have identical budgets, by the way. Both just like what, a little 19. under? 19.5. Okay. So with Pan's, first of all, I read an interesting fact. Was there one piece of music that you wrote the whole thing to? Yeah, it was Arbo Parts, uh, Spiegel and Spiegel. Why that piece? If you hear it, now it's been used even for commercials, and <laughs> everybody knows it now, but back then it was Arbo Part, whom I admired, was a very interesting composer, and that piece, which he recorded for some reason at half volume, mm-hmm. is super low, and it has the simplicity of a lullaby, mm-hmm. and it moved me to tears every time I heard it, and I, I started writing with that on a loop. If you haven't heard it, I thoroughly recommend you. Oh, no, I will definitely it. check it out. You then make this movie with not a big budget, as we're saying, 19.5, with 300 effect shots. Yes. How did you even do it in budget? Well, we were very committed to it. And I would, for example, if I had money for the ferries to be on the scene, I would have them cross the frame and then they disappeared for <laughs> 10 shots <laughs> and they would come back at a crucial shot. You know, it's all what I call gestures. Mm-hmm. If you do if you do five or six big gestures in a movie, the budget looks bigger. And in this case, though, the, another interesting thing was that you had people coming to you saying, we like your past work. We want you to make this movie in English yes. and we'll give you a lot more money. Right? Yeah, they were offering me 35 why was it not something you were open to doing to do it in English? Because it's a forgery if I do it in English. You know, it's not a story that belongs to the English language. Mm-hmm. It would be a fugazi. Yeah. You know, <laughs> if you are going to mine for diamonds, right. for fuck's sake, yeah. mine for diamonds. Right. You know, and I thought, you know, I'm going to end up being one of those Euro productions that have Rutger Hauer and, you know, God knows whom. I didn't feel it was organic. When I accepted Ron Perlman, in Kronos, I made it about two American characters, mm-hmm. him and his uncle, you know? This, I'm not gonna, I was not going to do it. And in this case, though, with Doug Jones playing the fawn, what sort of direction did you give him about the physicality of this guy? Because it's such a yeah. now going to be an iconic thing. Well, you know, uh, on the beginning, I said to him, because the fawn starts old and ages in reverse and becomes young, as, as the movie progresses. So in the beginning, I showed him how goats shake from the top to the bottom. And I said, can you mimic that? And he did it a couple of times in the beginning. And I said, move like your joints hurt. You know, and then as he came back, I said, I, I used to give him this silly instruction. I said, you're Mick Jagger now. And, I said, and then later I would say, you're Bowie. <laughs> you know, you're a superstar, you know. And at the end, when he's gesturing with the dagger, right. He's like Bowie in a concert, you know? That's great. He's gesturing big, and he's doing this theatrical <laughs> sort of uh, big stage movement. You That's know? great. So when that movie had tremendous success, yes. critical, commercial, and then first time for you with Oscars, mm-hmm. six nominations, 
three wins, best art direction, best cinematography, best makeup. Mm-hmm. I remember that night, and I just think that it was a very unusual thing for a non-English language movie to come into the heart of Hollywood and yeah. win so many major prizes. And I just wonder for you, though, what was that night like, and did it change things for you going forward? I think it's still the Spanish language movie with most wins at the Oscar, and it changed a lot of things, a lot of things. It was very magical. My family flew from Mexico. They were in, in the Roosevelt Hotel watching mm-hmm. the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But I remember saliently that it also felt like a relief because it was the end of the award season, yes. which is, is, as anyone that has done it, and you do it every year, is a huge marathon. Right. So, you know, you're there now, and win or lose, you get an answer, <laughs> and you go home, you know? Right. And I remember, the thing I remember the most is when the ceremony ended, I said, I'm taking off my shoes. <laughs> These are so tight. And I took off my shoes and my feet expanded like an airbag. That's so funny. And I got into the limo and I knew I didn't have to go to the dinner. I didn't have to, you know, and I, I said, You're free. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so after that, you made some interesting choices again because, mm-hmm. or unexpected choices, we should mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. What happened with The Hobbit? Well, we, I was there for two years, solid. In working on it. Yeah, on working on it, scouting, designing, yeah. scheduling. And I think that it came to the point we had hurdles that we had to pass, including a major lawsuit. And then eventually out of the nothing, a bankruptcy came For around. MGM, yeah, yeah and, I, and I thought the way I looked at it, and, and the numbers kind of line up, I would have been five years in New Zealand. Now, at that point, I didn't know. It could have been seven. Right. And I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and make a movie. And, you know, I went out, went to Legendary, did Pacific Rim. Yes. Had a blast making it. I adored that movie. Because, just so people know why, the, the appeal for Pacific Rim. Kaijus and Giant Robots. Japanese monsters. Yeah. But, but beyond that, what attracted me is I came up with the notion of the two pilots. Mm-hmm. And I came up with the notion of a little girl that has a trauma when she's a kid and grows up. And still inside that uh, woman is the little scared girl. And then that woman is inside a giant robot, still with a little scared girl inside. Mm-hmm. And she's next to another guy that is also scared. And the only possibility to survive is, is if they trust each other. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that's a movie I want to make. Yeah, and yeah. and I, I love doing it. The tragedy there is that at the time of launching the movie came the Kramer versus Kramer divorce of Legendary and Warners. You've had a couple of rough things because when was the first time that anyone ever saw The Devil's Backbone? Oh, it, it was nine ten, not nine eleven. It was nine ten or nine nine, like a day or two before nine eleven. Yeah, yeah. And, and so it just kind of got lost. It got lost. It, 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 nobody wanted to see a movie about orphans on war and catastrophe and disaster. And it's still, to me, my second best movie. Mm-hmm. I adore it. But obviously, it would take a sociopath mm-hmm. not to realize that the stakes. What am I complaining? I don't have any complaints. Right, right, right. The but, movie, the uh, movie was made for those that were those that were adults at the time of nine eleven. You felt, I think, in a way that we haven't felt many times since. Mm-hmm. You felt the seismic mm-hmm. history change, mm-hmm. and you knew the world would never be the same, and it hasn't been. You're right. Coming back though to the period around Pacific Rim, did you ever have any second thoughts about the decision? 
to not do the Hobbit, or you're happy because a lot of things now have happened that no, could ne- not have happened. I've never, I've never, uh, in the most intimate moments, driving alone in the 101, yeah. sitting in an airplane in a bench in a park and the beach, never, never. I have never had a single second thought. Yeah, yeah. because as a result of not doing that, you were able to do Pacific Rim in 2013, yeah. Yeah. then Crimson Peak in 2015. Mm-hmm. This is sort of your your haunted house movie, right? You could, you finally, you know, could do one of those, another gothic period. But then all of this was leading up to The Shape of Water. And I just wonder, is The Shape of Water something that has been a story that's been on your mind forever? Or what was the origin of the idea for this film, which you have said, quote, it doesn't get more personal than Shape of Water for me. I'm the proudest of it. It's my favorite movie that I've done. Close quote. So what was the root of it? How far back have you been thinking about it? Well, the very, 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 very origin is I'm six years old watching TV on a Sunday and I see Creature from the Black Lagoon and I see Julie Adams swimming above the creature and the creature swimming beneath Julie Adams. And I think, oh, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And I thought they're going to end up together. And of course they don't and so forth, you know. <laughs> and and I thought about the shape of water in many incarnations over the decades but I couldn't find a, a way to do it. And then in 2011, during a breakfast with Daniel Krauss, he says, well, I thought about a janitor story that finds a creature in a government facility. And I said, that's the entry point, exactly. is the invisible people, the people without voice. And everything fell into place super fast, like a Tetris, you know, mm-hmm. bam, 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 bam. And I said, this is the movie I'm going to do. And when we're talking about invisible people, we're talking about also outsiders, a mute yeah. cleaning woman, yeah. Her black coworker in 1962, yeah. Yeah. not not a particularly empowered person. Her gay neighbor, closeted the, gay neighbor, closeted gay neighbor, Russian spy, Russia, all these characters yeah. taking on again authority. Yeah. The G-men, the military, on yeah. and on. Why did you decide to set it during the Cold War and specifically in 1962? Well, the Cold War. There's no better place to talk about love than the Cold War. <laughs> but uh, 62 is very specific for me because I went through all the permutations. And 62 is the moment where there's a part of the American imagination that crystallizes the identity of an almost fairy tale like country mm-hmm. with Kennedy in the White House Camelot, you know, the post-World World War II affluency, you know, the suburban life. In many ways, the country starting to define itself through media, publicity, TV, you know. Kennedy uh, era, yeah. The Kennedy era. There is a, a mythic quality that I think is the one that you hearken back when when you hear the slogan, let's make America great again. People are imagining that. But what happens is in reality, if you were a minority, if you were a woman, it was not not so great. And what happens for me is that negative space that exists there, this moment in which America is obsessed with the future was a perfect moment to put an ancient, Mm -hmm. perhaps an elemental god, in a country obsessed with the future. And it becomes a filthy thing that came from South America, <laughs> you know? And, and and I thought everything in the shape of water, I would say everything, like in Devil's Wagon, like in Penn's Labyrinth, is truly laid out with a care and the desire that everything connects. That everything, if you see it again and again, everything makes sense. Design-wise, plot-wise, is a unity. The first time I saw this was the first time it was shown in North America in Telluride mm-hmm. on a appropriately pouring night, rain yeah. 
downfall. We could hear it on the roof of the theater, yes. which would have been bad for any movie except this <laughs> movie. Yes. But the thing that you talked about on that night in Telluride was that in a way it was also your way of talking about immigration. Yes. Which on Saturday night, that was what Alejandro Inarritu, yeah. one of the other three amigos, mm-hmm. he talked about it at the governor's wars. It was something that it's not overly reading into it to say that no. this was a statement about immigration, right? It's about, it's beyond that. It's about the other, quote unquote, the other and the otherness. And mm-hmm. monsters incarnate two things that are very dear to me, otherness and imperfection, mm-hmm. which I think are qualities. You know, I think uh, Alejandro and I, without agreeing on it, Without talking about it, he said exactly the same thing I've been repeating in the last four weeks of awards interviews. I've I've been saying ideologies blind us, Mm -hmm. and ideologies make people invisible so we can beat them, marginalize them, or hate them. Because you cipher the entirety of a person in one epithet. Immigrant, illegal, you can insult them for their sexual preference, their nationality, their religion, and they separate us. But the movie tries to say, look, there is no us and them. There's only us, you know? And and if you manage to convey that in a fable, then you you don't have this horrible incommunication that we experience that an argument in, in these days is countered and diffused in two beats. Right. And I, I think that the most artificial form of intelligence is cynicism. Mm-hmm. And now I realize, and Alejandro and I came to the same conclusion like four years ago again, we have a synchronicity, the three of us, that sometimes is really uncanny. And we said, you know, emotion is a really risky thing right now. You know, to be emotional is what makes you seem disingenuous sometimes. Mm-hmm. and then, So let's talk about emotion with as much intelligence as we can. Mm-hmm. Are there things that you could do today that an audience can accept today that clearly in 1954 when Creature from the Black Lagoon was mm-hmm. was unveiled, you know, you talk yeah. about the they couldn't get together. Yeah. Here, they really get together. Yeah, but it goes, it goes way beyond that for me. I think that the vernacular of genre is useful for me if utilized in a different way. Mm-hmm. I've never done a straight by the numbers thing that I feel. I followed the steps, mm-hmm. meaning those numbers are observed, mm-hmm. but they're reconstructed. Right. For example, here, you have the image of the monster with the girl in his hands, in his arms, but it's an image of love. It's not an image of horror. Right. So I think you need to make it recognizable and yet completely different. What I use as an analogy always is the Campbell soup can or the urinal signed by the champ, <laughs> or a Roy Lichtenstein blown up pop artifact. That's the way I approach mm-hmm. my movies. I approach them as reconstruction, deconstruction, but not ironic, mm-hmm. completely earnest mm-hmm. and falling, falling in love. The movie, I don't think even making it, I couldn't have made it four years ago. I seriously think the movie happened because when of in where you were but everywhere. Yeah. I mean, one of my mentors in Mexico saw it and he said, "You finally exhaled," mm-hmm. and I feel it's true. It's the first time in my professional life of twenty-five years. I, this is when I've taken major, bigger risks than any any time before, and it pays off. And it well, it pays off because you feel alive, right? And you feel the movie is alive in a way that that is different, you know. Last two things, if I can. Just the first, because you you mentioned the three of you, and it's unbelievable what the three of you have achieved. And I I mean, just in the last like four years, I think 
Alfonso wins Best Director for Gravity. Alejandro wins for both Birdman and The Revenant. This could very possibly be your year for this. Regardless, whatever, forget about awards. These are um, incredible movies. And Mm -hmm. I just wonder if you can share, what is the history of you three? How did you first meet? And from what I understand, you will show each other your movies. You'll give Mm -hmm. notes. So talk about those relationships. Well, Alfonso and I have been friends for 30 years. You know, so that's a long, long, long From time. From back in Mexico. Yeah, back in Mexico, 80, 87 we met. And we instantly became friends, but we made each other really mad and laugh, <laughs> both things. You know, we were very insulting when we needed to be, you know. And Alejandro, I met in 2001 because Alfonso said, look, there is this guy that made a movie called Amores Perros that is super long and he refuses to cut anything. And the only guy that I, we believe is like a, a missionary for stubbornness <laughs> is you. Can you call him and tell him? And I said, okay, send me a VHS, which I still have. Wow. I still have that VHS. Alejandro sent me the VHS. I saw it, and I called him, and I said, your movie's 20 minutes too long. <laughs> I says, oh, yeah? Well, why don't you come and show me where it's long, Mr. Texas guy. <laughs> you know, he was living in Austin. Right. And I showed up on my own dime at his doorstep, Mm -hmm. and I slept in his house in the sofa for three days. He says, and it's true, that I ate everything in his fridge, (laughs) you know? And we took out about 20 minutes. He says seven, and then he says three. (laughs) Nope, it was 20. It's a great movie. Yeah, and it's a great movie. And we moved some scenes to other places. We sort of played with it, you know? And we became really close. Look, Alejandro is one of the most adorable people on earth. He is truly endearing. He's a he's a giant heart, you know? There's no way you're going to not like him. And, and I think he's a tremendous artist. So, you know, we started, and without realizing it, the three of us did movies that were thematically similar on Babel, Children of Man, and Pan's Labyrinth in many, many ways. And we found ourselves, after consulting with each other, Alfonso and I would get together and plan. This is back when Alfonso was supposedly not really well-versed on digital effects, Mm -hmm. and I was the guy that knew (laughs) digital effects, and we were breaking down the birth on Children of Man in elements. Well, he can cross the door here, and that's a wipe, and and I thought I was super smart until I saw the movie and I saw (laughs) the famous sequence in the car. Right. And I said, okay, (laughs) I don't know how anything's on. I'm an ignorant, you know, and, and he's a master. And Alejandro, again, we... We show each other in the screenplays. And when Alfonso and I, we were so proud of, you know, what each of us had done. Alfonso was super happy with Gravity. I was happy with Pacific Rim. And and, and we go and see Birdman <laughs> and see the single shot movie. And is, Alejandro said, anything to say? I said, let's go have a drink. <laughs> and, we, and it's one of the rare times where we went to a bar yeah. and stayed until we closed the bar. That's great. Yeah. Well... The last question is, you've now made a movie that people are going crazy for everywhere. Venice loved it. Telluride loved it. Toronto, you where you shot part of the movie, people yeah. went crazy. Yeah. And it's rolling out to the world now. You say it's the thing you're proudest of, you know, in your opinion, your best movie. How do you feel right now, personally, about just where your career is, where it's going? Are you able to, you know, when we have a conversation like this, feel proud as you look back at, look at how far you've come in your life. Yeah, I mean, look, yes, definitely. 
the fact is that now you know I I, I may not be a brand, but I'm an acquired taste. You know, <laughs> I, you know what you're gonna get. You right. know, it's a thing that gives me great satisfaction in the sense that I've been able to preserve an identity that was there in Kronos for 25 years. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've learned a lot by succeeding and failing. And the arrogance meter is really low, <laughs> and the experience meter is begging nicely. So I think that the last four years of my life became increasingly hard in certain areas, and this was a huge bet. This is a movie that was done on a scale of 60 million for Mm 19.5. The ambition was huge. I bet my entire salary as director, producer, and writer into the movie, except for my guild uh, dues, (laughs) which I'm I'm a dutiful guild member. And when you see it connect with an audience... You know, that's the biggest, I mean, uh, we got, I have gotten two full credit standing ovations in my life. One was in Pan's Labyrinth, 25 minutes. And Venice, when, before we got, won the Golden Lion, I already felt like a winner because we got applause through the credits and until we left the theater and I was moved to tears because making this movie was so hard. And you said, it's you. This is it you is. on screen. On screen. And, and one day... I'll buy you a Bailey's because <laughs> I don't drink hard liquor and we'll talk about it. But it, it is as genuine, as sincere, and as alive as a movie can be. Well, it's an honor to have you on this podcast. And I really thank you for being so candid during this yeah. conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you, man. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.